And tonight we talk about David, uh, the son of, um, whose son was he? Jesse. Son of Jesse. Uh, And that was the voice of Robert Pinsky, who is one of our guests tonight, the former poet laureate of the United States and the author of a new book, The Life of David, just published as one of the first volumes, I think the first in a wonderful new series about which we will say a few words. Our other guest is Benjamin Summer, who is professor of religion at Northwestern University, where he uh, also is director of the Center for Jewish Studies. And we are tonight wandering in the Old Testament, particularly around the great central character, one of the three or four most interesting characters, surely, and most figural in all of the Old Testament. But I offer you, just to remind you, uh, the great book by Schweitzer, by Albert Schweitzer, who, uh, summarizing the scholarship on the historical Jesus, uh, titles his book, or subtitles it actually, Der Besuch dem historischen Jesu, The Search for the Historical Jesus. What about Der Besuch dem historischen David? What do we know about the real man? Can we reconstruct the real man? This is Ben's department. Uh, My impression is we know almost nothing about the real man. We can be pretty sure that there was such a man. I think that that's clear. Already in the 9th century BCE, we have uh, inscriptions, Aramaic inscriptions that have been discovered that mention the house of David, the dynasty of David. That's only about 100 years after he would have been alive, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe 150 years. His death is figured at 962. Is that the right date? We, we can't really that's, put it... That's far it, too precise, I'm sure. A bit too precise, but uh, I, I, I always like to tell my undergrads uh, 1,000 is a nice even number that they can remember for uh, for keeping things well, in order. Well, he seems to come to the throne at around 1,000 B.C. Correct, correct. So not that much thereafter. About a century and a half later, we do have an inscription uh, from an Aramean or Syrian king that mentions the dynasty of David. So we can be pretty sure that somebody of this name lived... But what we really know about his life, uh, whether this, whether the reports about his life that we find in the biblical book of Samuel, the beginning of the biblical book of Kings, and also the biblical book of Chronicles, whether those are well, something vaguely like what we might call a biography or something closer to what we would call historical fiction, there's absolutely no way that we'll ever be able to figure that out. A number of years ago, it must have been in the mid-'80s, Joseph Heller was here. Uh, I'm sure, Robert Pinsky, you know his... Uh, fictional rendering of the the memoirs of King David. Haven't read it. No, it's really quite funny, and it's uh, he makes him into sort of a a retired uh, but rather overbearing Jewish cloak and suitor of this time, but he places him back in his own time. Um, that's one rendering of David. It's not at all persuasive that it catches the real David. Have you, Robert Pinsky, felt that you have some way of catching the real David? My favorite legend is the one where David is not supposed to have a life. He's supposed to die in infancy. But Adam happens to be walking around in the part of heaven where the souls are waiting to be born. And he notices this one soul. He says, oh, that kid is terrific. Oh, that's a great soul. That soul's amazing. Oh, he has a great soul. He shouldn't die in infancy. And God happens to be walking by at the same time. Adam says, oh, that soul is... a." That's a great soul. That's a, you know, you gave me a thousand years uh, to live. I'll give him 70 of my years because he's so great. And God says, well, all right. And God calls the lawyer angels up, and they draw up a contract. Uh, the uh, below signed, uh, aforementioned uh, uh, Adam does hereby assign and designate and according to all the rights and privileges of years defined as blah, blah, to the aforementioned 
David, son of Jesse, house of Benjamin, and the God countersigns it, the angels witness it, the contract is executed, and David gets his 70 years. What this uh, story means to me is why the book is called The Life of David. Adam is the first man. He's the earth that has in it the seed of everything we can be. Every horrible thing, every beautiful thing, every race, every mannerism, it's all there in potential in Adam. And what Adam recognizes is the life, the soul, that will be the largest possible fruition and flowering of all of our good and bad and all of our capacities. He's the most capable and capacious possible soul. So Adam, the seed, recognizes in David the fullest life possible. I don't believe of any human life I've ever heard in fiction or fact or ever described. I don't think there's any human life that is as large and has as much in it as the life of David. I've been reading your book, and I stumbled on television one night recently <clears throat> on um, the thing that they call Troy, which is a rendering uh, of the Iliad. <laughs> and I've, this popular actor, I forget now which one it is. I don't know the new guys that well. A writer friend of mine tells me that um, the leather pants look especially good. <laughs> uh, the leather, She says that... Uh, yeah. The, the leather pants look really great on, um, what's his name? What is his name, the fellow who plays Achilles? Oh, Brad right. Pitt, is it? I, you know, it I is Brad Pitt. I think it is Brad Pitt. Uh, that's just confirmed. Brad Pitt, apparently, really knows how to wear leather pants. He does. Little shorts, hot but, pants. But because I was reading your book at the same time, I wondered, you know, this you is... You weren't reading great... at the same time. You were reading my book, and you said, I'm tired of this boring crap. That's I right. watched TV for a while. That's right. And there was Achilles, played by Brad Pitt, and a very heroic figure, and full of... Uh, of uh, rages and full of uh, and rather rapine in his relation to uh, the woman that he grabs uh, and that he's struggling with Agamemnon over uh, and just larger than life and striding around uh, in a very moody way of course and he refuses to fight for a long time which brings ruin upon the Achaeans as we know is there any similarity between between th these two heroic figures and in general is there something uh, uh, archetypical about David as hero. There'd be a similarity if Achilles was a great poet. If Achilles was also Homer, there might be a mm -hmm. similarity. David is at least as great a killer and athlete as Achilles. But he, and he's also a great poet. He plucks the lyre. And unlike Achilles, he's not just a jock. He's not just the, an athlete. He's not just a great poet either. He's also the founder of a dynasty and a great political leader. Nobody ever thought Achilles was a great political leader. So you have to say it's like being Achilles and Odysseus and Homer and maybe Abraham Lincoln as well. Where do we have poet warriors in, in, uh, in epic uh, material of Western culture or any of culture generally? Not many cases of, of that kind Cyrano of... Cyrano de Bergerac is a well, warrior much, much later, poet, sure. is he not? Um, but, you know, I, I think it's a great question, the comparison that you draw between Achilles and mm -hmm. David. Are, are they similar? David comes off better. I don't know that, that he comes... I'm not sure about that. I, I think that they're both warriors, but from literally the very first line, they're very different kinds of warriors. The first words that we hear about Achilles in the Odyssey are that this is a poem about the wrath of Achilles. Mm -hmm. This is about the Orge Achilleos. Uh, and this is, this is a character who, who doesn't control his own wrath, who pouts in his tent for many months while his colleagues, while his fellow soldiers from the Greek side are dying, 
um, and as a result, who allows his closest friend, um, Patrocles, to, to go to his death. Achilles is a person who's not really in control of himself. David's very different. Oh, well, David, David is not fully in control of himself. Uh, certainly, David, when he's David's up on the roof, accurately in control. I, no, I, I, I when he's up on the roof, in control. Well, when he's up on the roof and he spots Bathsheba, hey, he was in control. He did what he wanted mm -hmm. to do, and then he cleaned up the mess the Absolutely. way he wanted to clean it up. Absolutely. And uh -huh. uh, as far as any earthly authorities went, the, he was never the worst. The off dramatic for control of himself for me is when the infant is mortally sick. Yes. Mm -hmm. the baby is dying. He's fasting. He's praying. He lies in the dirt. They plead with him, come inside, don't lie in there. He won't come inside. He won't eat. He won't drink water. He's tearing his garments. And the henchmen are upset when the infant actually dies. They start whispering to one another, what are we going to do? He was so upset when he was sick. What will we do now? And David says, I see you whispering. It must mean the baby died. Did it die? And they say, yes. He says, well, uh, make me a bath and get me some clean clothes. Let's have something to eat. And they say, what thing is this? And he explains to them that when the infant possibly could be saved by God, he was talking to God about this. Now it's a close. He says, the infant will never come to me. I will go to the infant someday. Now there's other things to do. Does this mean that he was faking the grief? No. I believe the grief and the upset and the praying and the lying in the dirt were all genuine. Unlike Achilles, he also can control it. He can use it. He is an histrionic character. He can use his own feelings theatrically, the way a great rhetorician or politician can. Achilles is like a boy, by comparison. Achilles is a boy. Achilles is, is a boy in, in the body of a hero. Even when he's a youth, David, David is always a very mature man. On the other hand, with Achilles, we know what Achilles is thinking. We know what he's feeling. We know what he's emoting. Because for Achilles, there's there's really no no border between thought and action. So we, the reader yeah, yeah. of the poem, we know it, we know it's in the foreground. How does David, I have a we don't know that. Ask, we don't, we, we, we never really know what David is you thinking. You don't know what he's thinking. The example of that for me is David has been the bodyguard of Achish, the Philistine king. The Philistines are about to go to war with Saul and Jonathan and the Israelite army. David has been a very loyal soldier for the Philistine king, Achish. David says, I want to go and fight with you. The other Philistine elders and generals say, we can't trust this Hebrew. Don't let him come. David says, please let me come. Achish says, I trust you completely. I know you would want to fight with us, but you better go away. So David evades our knowing whether he intended to betray Achish, whether he intended to betray Saul and Jonathan, in his characteristic good fortune or good sense, he avoids the issue. In your heart, Ben, what do you think David was thinking? I, I think you've chosen a great example because it's sort of a quintessential David moment. We just can't know. What yeah. was he, whose side was he really I on? the same way. He, was he planning for this to happen all along? I mean, this, it, it's, uh, my guess would be David wanted the Philistines to see that he wanted to go fight and he knew that he wouldn't be allowed to. He, he won both ways. Yes. He didn't have to go out onto the battlefield and make the choice, but he showed some loyalty. It wasn't his fault that he didn't so fight what, for So what is side. he, a, a great trickster, or is he, in the Whitman-esque phrase, uh, does he contain multitudes? A shapeshifter, you sometimes call him. Yes. 
I think he's very how, calculating. How do we account for the character of David? How can a great hero who's a great poet also be such a great politician? Uh, if I had to answer in a word, I would say imagination. He has a great imagination. And he can imagine the <laughs> moral and theological situation with the dying infant. He can imagine the political repercussions and the psychological factors uh, involved in fighting with the Philistines. And when that battle is over, and Saul and his beloved Jonathan and the other brothers are killed and the Israelites are massacred, he writes this beautiful elegy for them that is also very well calculated politically. It's at once very deep personal feeling and it's a terrific public ceremony. Of course, we've had other politician poets. Uh, the most recent is the current president of France, the Villepin, who writes poetry. Uh, the president of the Côte d'Ivoire many years ago, I forget his name, um, an African, was a famous poet as well as a member of the French Senate. Well, yes, I play the saxophone. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> I would say a comparison that comes to mind as far as a, um, a, a, a person who was a warrior, who was a statesman, and was a fine prose writer would be Churchill, Winston Churchill. Uh -huh. Um, Lincoln was a great writer. Lincoln was a great writer. Sure. He did write poetry. Lincoln's poems are very affecting. They're very, very uh, more than competent. They're very well written. But of course, uh, these are all historical characters. A fascinating question is, and I pose it just as we pause for some commercials, is uh, how many people have constructed David? We know that the Old Testament is the work of a committee, but it's not a committee that met at one time. It's people going over the work that others have done 100 or 200 or 500 years later. And the Old Testament grows. Uh, at some point, it's formulated. At some point, it's canonized and fixed in its content. But what do we know about the construction of the image and the character of David and the stories of David? We'll come directly back uh, to Robert Pinsky and Benjamin Summer in pursuit of that particular question after these words. We are talking about David, the David of the Old Testament, the David of uh, vivid memory, uh, and uh, we're talking about uh, reality and representation. They are not necessarily identical. Robert Pinsky, former poet laureate of the United States, a professor of um, literature at Boston University, and uh, author of the new book, The Life of David, is one of our guests. The other is Benjamin Sommer, who is professor of religion at Northwestern University, where he is as well the director of the Crown Family Center for Jewish Studies at Northwestern. Let's go to biblical scholarship and to the reconstruction of a history of the making of the Old Testament. What do we know about where uh, the stories of David came from and how they were worked and reworked and by whom? We've got stories about David primarily in three places in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, in the book of Samuel, the very first chapter or two of the book of Kings, that's place number one. Uh, we've got the book of Chronicles later in the Hebrew Bible. We also have references to David's life here and there in the book of Psalms. And the three groups of texts, I think, are, are remarkably different. The, the oldest is probably material that we have in Samuel and Kings. As you mentioned before, this is a book, like most biblical books, written by committee. There's no doubt a number of scribes and, and uh, scholars who and were over involved. over how many hundreds of years? We don't really know, but several from beginning to end, we're talking several hundred years, minimally. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, what's remarkable to me, at least, is how really consistent the portrayal of David is throughout those books. It, I don't think, and Robert, uh, you might disagree based on what you say in the very beginning of your book, I don't really think that we can find so much of a pro-David set of verses and a, an anti-David set of verses in the book. 
when we've got pro-David material, it often has a certain edge to it. And the, the closer you begin to look at the pro-David stuff, you realize that it's being ironic. And the anti-David material tends to be enormously sympathetic. So I, I tend to think that whatever the number of authors, there's a remarkable unity in the book of Samuel, the early chapters of Kings. This is a man that is once at, at, at once deeply loved by these authors and a man whom they didn't trust, but still a man whom they saw as a great leader. They may have understood that sometimes the greatest leaders are the ones that you can't trust. Um, so I think that there's a variety of viewpoints, not because we've got a, so many authors, we probably do have a lot of authors, but because there's a very, very complex and ironic understanding of a very complex man. Chronicles, which is a later book written um, you know, probably around 400 BCE or so, at the very tail end of the biblical period, of the, the period of the Hebrew Bible, that is, it has a much more positive view of David. It's much more whitewashing, much more simplistic view of David, I would say. Um, and I think that that simplistic whitewashing point of view recurs in later, in later literature, I think in rabbinic literature, for example, um, mm -hmm. where some of the sins are, are apologized for some of the time at least. And as for the book of Psalms, can mm -hmm. we, Robert, uh, indeed take seriously the thought that most of them or many of them are written by David? This is the kind of question I pay almost no attention to at Doesn't all. Doesn't matter to you. Why not? Uh, in the course of the story, as it's told in Samuel, David writes poems. The poems are dramatically very interesting. Some of them are in Psalms. Some of them are separate from the Psalms. And I, uh, uh, unlike Ben, I am not a scholar. I just wanted to tell good stories. And I'm very interested in the legends. I told you the legend about uh, David and uh, being given his life by Adam. Uh, ben mentioned uh, stories that are meant to exonerate or exculpate David. Some of them are so crazy. I and mean, for me, this is a story of stories. So I'm interested in the committee that is still meeting. We're still making up stories about David. There will be another bad movie made someday. There have already been a couple of bad movies I made. I think I remember Gregory Peck as David. That's the better of the bad movies. Well, Apparently, the Richard Gere one is so bad, no one has ever seen it. Is, there is a Richard Gere as David? I don't know Absolutely. about Absolutely. Um, it, it is hard to believe when you read some of the stories where they try to excuse David. It's hard to believe that these rabbis were not smoking you, marijuana. You, you point out, just as a small note, uh, in the life of David by Robert Pinsky, that uh, Gregory Peck, when he parades around as David, is wearing on his toga or whatever uh, the Star of David. Star of course, David, which is a 13th century thing. David yeah. never heard of a six-pointed star. Uh, well, it came from some crazy place, like from the the Kabbalists got it from the Knights Templar or something. Yeah. This is an example of what I mean by not caring about the historical origin so much as it is of David because David is a magnet. So yeah. the star is of him as the Psalms are of him. And everything gets to be of him. Um, if I can give an example Please. of one of these crazy uh, legends, uh, we have to make uh, Uriah the Hittite, who is such a straight arrow, such a good person. We have to find a reason he's not so good. So the story is, well, um, Uriah had the key to Goliath's armor. And um, when David wanted to chop off Goliath's head, uh, he couldn't because this armor was locked. It was so thick. And uh, this is what I mean by saying I think they must have been smoking dope. Yeah. And see, Uriah had the key. And Uriah said, well, I'll give you the key to Goliath's armor if you get me a beautiful Israelite girl for a wife. So he got Bathsheba by low means. 
So therefore, this in some way exonerates David. Well, that's a silly story in many ways, um, but it's also a fascinating story that somebody wanted to make it up and that in a way the whole trickster part of it and the problem-solving part of it, it belongs in a folk tale about younger sons and their difficulties. It's part of the story of the stories. Here is the beginning of the story, more or less, David's first uh, rise to public view and to some prominence as recounted in a black uh, spiritual. Lord knows when it was written, but uh, we all know it, I think, and here it is. Rather over-orchestrated, I would say, or over-rewritten, uh, over but still, one knows it uh, as a basic American song or a basic spiritual song. Uh, what are we... That is more or less the beginning of the public life of David, is it not? His being sent by his father to uh, bring some stuff to his brothers who are fighting with the army of Saul, and nobody wants to fight the great Philistine giant Goliath, but David volunteers to do it. It's a little more confused than that. That is one of the beginnings of his public one life. Of the way it's told another way, an evil spirit from the Lord is in Saul, and uh, they find this incredibly charming, harp-playing shepherd boy. Yeah. So there's two stories. They sit awkwardly together in chronology, but along with that music we heard and the crazy legends, it's part of this layers of stories. Well, there's and a third, too. There's really three introductory stories. Mm -hmm. There's a story mm -hmm. of of Samuel being told to anoint a new king, um, and he goes to, to a particular family. There are a whole bunch of boys. He goes straight to the, the oldest strapping young big, man. Big, tall kid. Tall guy, just like Saul. Uh, Saul was a tall guy, and he became king. But Eliab, he doesn't, it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be him. He this goes isn't the, the one. He yeah. goes through all of them, and then they mention it after they've gone through all the boys that, well, there's another, the youngest, he's, but he's off with the sheep, and you certainly don't want him. He's yeah. just Some lost. people think his mother was a servant, Egyptian servant girl anyway. It, but uh, he turns out to be the one Samuel was, was confused himself, and it, it turns out to be this unlikely, uh, this yeah. unlikely young and this son. And Samuel looks at Eliab, and he says, surely that must be the chosen of the Lord. So there are really three yeah. different beginnings to the story. Which don't it's really cohere with each other that well. It's, it's very yeah. confused. And then out of that confusion, 
becomes a sense of this character. That's what my book is like. Sure. I'm just interested in all the nutty stories that we tell. And uh, Do we how... tell more stories about David than about any of the other characters of the Old Testament? Probably more good stories. I mean, David and Michal is a great story. Yeah. To me, a much more uh, mm -hmm. moving story than the story of David and Bathsheba, a much richer story. And a lot of people never heard this story. Uh, well, I tell adore, the story right now. Um, She's the she's the daughter of Saul, is she not? She's one of the daughters of Saul. Yeah, and uh, Saul is a little appalled by this uh, young kid who turns out to be an expert killer, and people are saying is really even better than the king. But David and Saul are pretending to just adore one another. It's a, as I say in the book, it's a scene from a gangster movie. And uh, later Saul on, Saul says, "I really like you, kid. You're a nice kid. Uh -huh. I really like you." I want you to marry my daughter. And he's thinking, I hope this kid gets killed. And David says, oh, who am I? I'm just a shepherd boy. I, I, I couldn't marry a king's daughter. Saul says, no, 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 I like you, kid. Don't give me a fancy bride price. I don't need a lot of money. Don't just bring me, uh, bring me, uh, bring me the foreskins of a hundred Philistines. Yes. <laughs> Meaning, I hope you die. Yeah. And David gets his men together they go out, and he brings back the foreskins of 200 Philistines as a way taunting the older man. Meanwhile, that firstborn daughter, the older daughter, Mirab, has married some other guy, some boy who went to Brown. You know, he comes from nowhere. <laughs> and it then it says this remarkable sentence, Michal loved David. She's a younger daughter. Not a passive chattel that's being given to... Uh, the, the dangerous young man. Michal loved David. She marries David, and when Saul sends his men to kill David, she lets David down out the window. She warns him. She's the one who knows the killers are coming. As an adventured novel, she lets him down out the window. He runs away. She makes an effigy of him in the bed to deceive the killers, and then she tells sort of uh, patent lies to her father about it. Well, then, when David is in exile, the story, that's a good story in itself. When he's in exile, he's not with her. And um, when the exile is over, Saul has died. There's a new regime. And Abner, the general, comes to David and says, we want you to be king of both kingdoms, reunite the kingdoms. The first thing that David says is, before you see my face, I want to see the face of my wife, Michal, for whom I paid a hundred foreskins of the Philistines walking toward me. She, meanwhile, Saul has given her a different husband. And she walks toward David with that husband, Faltiel, weeping and crying after her until the general Abner says, go home, and the husband has to go back. That's a very impressive story. But part of the, one aspect of that, by the way, if I could... Uh, jump in. You mentioned that we're told Michal loves David. Yes. Uh, we're also. It's very clear from the very touching scene where Paltiel, Michal's second husband, is weeping, imploring the, the general to allow her to come back, and he's forced. Uh, he's forced just to, humiliatingly just to, to go back home without uh, this woman. It's clear that he really loves Michal too. We're never told what David thinks about Michal. And the contrast, when one reads this over a few times very mm -hmm. slowly in the biblical text, between knowing that she mm -hmm. loved David, 
she had another husband who loved her, and we never find out what's going on inside David's head. David, David uses her. She's very useful to him. To be the son-in-law of the king is, is tremendously important for this up-and-coming courtier. Later, when he becomes king, there are questions as to his legitimacy, but if he's the son-in-law, if, if he can get Michal back, that gives him some claim yes. to the throne, um, but we never know what's happening inside. We are late for some commercials, I fear. Uh, what I would like to get to next, after those commercials, is, in fact, uh, how much of real early Israeli or Jewish or Hebrew history we can gather from the, the section of the Old Testament that we're talking about now. Was it really David who kind of put Israel and Judah together? Was that really the beginning of a, um, a Hebrew empire which lasted for a while? Uh, do we have a more or less proper historical account, even when we discount some of the rather wilder tales about the man and about those around him. We return directly to Robert Pinsky and Benjamin Sommer after this. And directly back to Benjamin Sommer, professor of religion at Northwestern University, Robert Pinsky, professor of English, I presume of English, at Boston University, former poet laureate of the United States, and uh, obviously one of our major poets. Among his um, volumes is The Want Bone, which I have enjoyed a great deal or profited from in an earlier reading, and the new book, The Life of David, published by Shokin, or Shokin, as the case may be. We've just had a little <laughs> private discussion as to what the proper pronunciation is. Uh, a word, um, before we get to some attempt to reconstruct history, a word about the series of which your book is the first. Yes. Um, I think the original idea was Jewish Lives, and uh, I know that Maimonides is uh, out by Sherwin Newland, and Douglas Century has finished the book on Barney Ross, the Jewish fighter. Uh, Jonathan Rosen, the brilliant general editor of the series, told me when my manuscript came in, he had the Barney Ross one. He said, I now have two manuscripts about great Jewish fighters. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, and in the way of these things, some people, and they do have Spinoza coming up, and I think somebody is doing uh, uh, Gold of My Year. I hope somebody's doing Disraeli. Um, and the way of these things, some people started saying they wanted to do uh, subjects, uh, and uh, somebody is doing uh, Jewish soldiers and military people, and uh, I can't wait to see uh, the um, uh, comic artist, uh, uh, what is his name, the guy who does those wonderful, Ben Kachor. Ben Kutcher will do the Jewish Dairy Restaurant. Yeah. Uh, yes. So it's from Jewish Lives. They've changed it to Jewish Encounters. Mm -hmm. And the books, I assume, are all going to be a couple hundred pages. They're not going to be big, long shrifts. And um, it's tying together a series. What I like about the series is that it is basically saying to writers, do a subject. Do something you find interesting. And uh, they're not uh, – it's the, the last thing from the scholarly series – and um, the books, as I, I hope they are meant to be, as I hope I tried to make mine, engaging, entertaining um, books that are fun to read. Now, my assignment, as I gave it to you a few minutes ago, is um, let's impose the template of actual history on what we've been talking about. Uh, it is, I suppose, fair to assume that the Bible, the, that the Hebrew Bible has it right. The first great uh, Hebrew king was David. Well, that's what the Hebrew Bible tells us, and there's no particular reason to doubt what the Hebrew Bible says, as far as I can tell. Uh, we don't have any, uh, you know, we don't have an archaeological record that says this is, you know, 
this is where David was anointed by Samuel in such and such a well, day. Well, how was ancient Israel actually populated? We have so many different tribes and groups uh, in this section of the Old Testament. Is David sort of conquering them and fighting them all off? I have no interest in this kind of subject. I don't so know anything about that. That's what you said before, I know. Yeah. But I do notice that his most loyal troops are the Cherethites and Pelethites, who are not Israelites. I don't know whether Uriah the Hittite was a Hittite, or they called him Hittite because he wore Hittite shoes or combed his hair Hittite way, or maybe he used to be a Hittite and became a Jewish convert. It doesn't say. But David also is considered not entirely Jewish by some people. His great-grandmother was Ruth, the Moab person. Uh, that's the reason I have a chapter called Cousin Goliath. Mm -hmm. Because there is this active legend uh, in Chaim Bialik and other places that when Ruth the Moabite came to um, uh, whither thou goest, I will go, and followed her mother-in-law Naomi back to the land of Israel, Orpah, Ruth's sister, who had married the other brother, uh, Orpah did not go back. And Orpah had a different personality from Ruth, and she saw a very, very tall Philistine coming down the road where she was in Moab, and she thought he looked great. He was covered with weapons, he was very tall, and she joined herself to him. And her great-grandson was Goliath. So the encounter between David and Goliath is an encounter between two half-breeds, or partial breeds. And it is the impression I get as a reader, not as a scholar, mm -hmm. is that there are many, many tribes. Some of them are Hebrew tribes. Some of them are not Hebrew tribes. Sometimes the suffix I-T-E in English means where a person comes from. Sometimes it means descent. And the distinctions that we want to make, as if you were in Great Neck and you say, this person is Jewish, that person is not, is not the kind of distinction that's necessarily in the minds of these people or in the narrative. Well, we don't really know when uh, people who thought of themselves as Jews uh, came on the scene. Well, We've got we Hebrews we're... there, but and they, of course, the word Jew itself is not in use at the time, is it? We're, the word Jew or Judite, I mean, in, in Hebrew, it has that Yehudi sure, yes. could be translated either as Jew or, or Judite, um, Judean. Uh, that was one of the Hebrew tribes going, going back to the time of David and earlier. I think that we, we do have some archaeological evidence that suggests when this ethnicity came in, comes onto the scene of history. We don't know where they came from necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know where they were before. What does the archaeological evidence tell us? Well, the, according to the Bible, the Israelites first settled in the highlands of Canaan, uh, in roughly what is today the Galilee, the West Bank, that is Samaria, Judah, the very northern end of the Negev Desert. And in the Bible, they're led in there... By Joshua. By Joshua, correct. Yeah. Actually, there are a few different biblical versions about how that came about, but one of the narratives is that they were led in by Joshua and they conquered the area. Now, archaeologically, we know that up until about the 1300s BCE, that area was not populated. The lowlands of Canaan, uh, closer to where, let's say, Tel Aviv would be today, up to where Haifa is today, that's flat land, much easier to farm, better sources of water. But the highlands, which are hilly, rocky, uh, covered with mm -hmm. trees. Those are not Our friendly found. enemies, the Philistines, are on the lowland, on the shore, aren't they? They're on the southern part of the lowland, roughly, yeah. to, let's say, where the Gaza Strip is today, yeah. up to about Ashdod or so, maybe maybe to Ashkelon. Um, but in the archaeological record, this area that had been largely uninhabited, except for about four or five large towns, of Jerusalem is one of them, starting in about 1200 BCE or so, all of a sudden, 
a new population is coming into this area. We don't know for sure where they're coming from, but we know two things about them. One, they tend to live in very small villages. They tend to have a clan-based um, social structure, which matches what we know about the early Israelites from the Bible. And two, we know what they ate and we know what they didn't eat because archaeologists can go to the, to the campfires, look at the bones, and identify them. The people down the hill, that is the Canaanites and the Philistines, they ate a varied diet that included pork. About 20, 30 percent of the bones down the hill where the Canaanites lived were pork. This new population up in the highlands of Canaan, starting around 1200 BCE, don't eat pork. Only between about zero and two percent of the bones um, from, from this area um, are, are pig bones. You say we don't know where they come from, but the Old Testament tells us they came over from Egypt. The Old Testament tells us they came from Egypt. The Old Testament tells us, or the Hebrew Bible tells us, that their ancestors came from Mesopotamia, what, what is mm -hmm. today, let's say, northern Iraq. Um, the Hebrew Bible, though, includes a lot of hints that some of them came from not quite as far away. Uh, Robert, you mentioned Uriah the Hittite. Yeah. Now, the name Uriah, Uriah, is very clearly an Israelite name. It, refer, it means the light of the, of the Lord, and it uses the specifically Israelite term Yah for the Lord. No other peoples use that as the name of God. Um, so he, he clearly had Israelite parents. He didn't convert, as you said. His parents gave him an Israelite name, and yet he's called the Hittite. The Hittites, in, in biblical parlance, refer to a subgroup of the Canaanites. Mm -hmm. This is clearly a Canaanite family that within some period of time had become Israelites. There are other cases of, of this as well. They're the Kenites. Um, is, it, is the peak of the formation of this brief empire under uh, David's son, Solomon? Well, again, we, we can't say for sure. We do know that when this population emerges from who knows where and, and settles down in the highlands of Canaan and doesn't eat pork, they're clearly the ancestors of the Israelites or the earliest Israelites, they live in small villages. There's no evidence of a larger political structure. Then in the 10th century BCE, we find that several different towns have fortifications that are built in the 10th century BCE, and the nature of the fortifications in various towns in both the northern part of Canaan and the southern part is the same sort of fortification, the same sort of gate is being, basically the same blueprints are being used, which seems to be evidence of a single political leadership imposing fortifications throughout the region. The timing, based on the stratigraphy that the, that the archaeologists have found, the timing is right for this to be the time of Solomon. So a great many biblical archaeologists think that this is the proof that there really was a Solomonic empire. Uh, there are some archaeologists who think that this may have happened 50 or 100 years later, in which case Solomon and David may have been chieftains, but not yet the, the, the leaders of this great empire. But both archaeologists would date this precisely to when Solomon, according to the biblical record, should have been alive. I think that that suggests, we can't prove anything, but it suggests mm -hmm. that, yes, Solomon really did reign over a, a substantial state, probably not quite as glorious as the Book of Kings tells us, but a substantial unified Israelite state. We are all three of us at this table, members of that tribe. Uh, do you ever, in your own private fantasies, uh, imagine that you descend directly from the people who moved and lived in that time. Can you ever construct uh, a fabled history for your own origins which takes you that far back? Or are they truly an alien distant people uh, to whom we have no direct connection? I, I, 
I certainly feel uh, that I have a, a direct connection. I mean, no doubt. Linguistically, my, we do. Of course. Linguistically, and you know, no doubt among my ancestors uh, are people who were living in the highlands of Canaan, not eating pork. And among my ancestors, no doubt, were people who were living in Germany and who were eating pork. And, um, lots of people became Jewish over, over the ages, and they, they were a very motley group of people nowadays, I suppose, genetically speaking. And even back then, they probably were, were a somewhat motley group you don't, of people. You don't buy the so-called Khazar hypothesis, do you? What is the Khazar hypothesis? The, 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 the case, yeah. Yeah, the Khazars, who supposedly converted en masse in the 8th century B.C. We find them represented in uh, Yehuda Halevi's Ketib al-Khazari, don't we? That hypothesis, uh, or that legend that we, we should say, really, that there was a, a kingdom in roughly the, the Transcaucasian mountains, yeah. uh, probably you know around where Azerbaijan or one of those stans are nowadays, who converted en masse to Judaism. It may or may not be true. That there may be some historical fact behind the legend. Um, but uh, if that's not true, then, then some other similar story is true. There were various peoples in one way or another who converted a to Judaism. A recent discovery that uh, fascinates me and has relevance to all of this, I just name it even as we pause to run away for some more commercials, is the recent study of DNA uh, comparisons or DNA similarities between various ethnic groups in the world, and two that are most closely linked are uh, Ashkenazic Jews, and, and Sephardic Jews for that matter, on the one hand, and uh, contemporary Palestinians on the other. Their DNA is highly, highly correlated, much more than for any other two groups in the world chosen at random, say. We are due for another round of commercials, and then we shall return to Robert Pinsky, to Benjamin Sommer, and to the adventures of David, King of the Jews. One of America's leading poets is our guest tonight. That's Robert Pinsky, former poet laureate of the United States. Our other guest is Benjamin Sommer, professor of religion at Northwestern University. And we must not uh, neglect to take advantage of the presence of Robert Pinsky as poet. Uh, and he writes the book, The Life of David, partly as poet. It's richly told with poetic sensibility, to be sure, but also it uh, has much appreciation of the work of David as poet. Let's talk about the Psalms. Let's talk about uh, how, how you construct him as poet. He comes up with very, very appropriate poems for occasions, notably a couple of deaths. And uh, there's some of the most beautiful poetry, certainly best translated poetry I've ever seen. I presume these are great poems in Hebrew. They're great poems in the 17th century translation as well. Um, this is probably the most famous one. It's his elegy for Jonathan and Saul. Uh, earlier, Ben and I were talking about what a peculiar moment it is when he seems to be very eager to fight on the side against him. Now he wants to both express personal feelings of having lost them great disaster for the Israelite army, and he also wants to say things that are ceremoniously and ceremonially appropriate. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shields of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan 
were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thy high places. I am distressed for thee. My brother, Jonathan, very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen, and the weapons of war perished? Oh, and he says the mm. names, it feels so intimate and so personal. And when he compares them to lions and eagles, it sounds like it could be accompanied by a brass band and flags. It's an extraordinary piece of writing, just an amazing piece of writing. Does it ring similarly in the Hebrew? It rings. The, um, the King James captures the rhythms of the Hebrew very mm -hmm. well. I mean, in many respects, by contemporary standards, it's, it's, a, it's a flawed translation. But there are very few translations that capture, I think, the rhythms of the Hebrew uh, the way King James does, both with poetry, actually, and for that matter, with prose. Mm -hmm. uh, isn't Our Father, which art in heaven, etc., traced to David? Does it, does it originate as one of the Psalms, or is it otherwise? Uh, in Hebrew, be Avinu Shabashamayim, which is a phrase that does appear in, in various Jewish prayers, but I don't think it goes back to Psalms. Mm -hmm. Actually, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, or what Christians call the Old Testament, the, the image of God as a father appears, but it is not a particularly common image. Um, it would not be, so that, that phrase uh, would not be a typical biblical phrase. Yeah. Let's have more of the poet David, and for that matter, some of your own poetry as it relates to the poetry of David. Well, um, I'll read a poem by myself. It's a poem that's my answer to people saying to me, this is something different for you, isn't it, Robert? You're doing something quite different in writing this book. And I hope I always do something different. But to me, the book seems very similar to things I've done before. Uh, I have always uh, liked to read history and literature for stories. I've always been a little cavalier, as I've revealed myself to be tonight, about the historical facts. I love Apocrypha. Um, there are these crazy stories about David. There are also crazy stories about Jesus. The Christian Apocrypha about Jesus are just astonishing. These are stories, as I get it, made up by monks. And monks make up these stories in which Jesus very often is a brat. He's a, he's a very uh, unpleasant child. He has a habit of smiting other children so frequently that one of these stories, a kid falls off a roof. People assume Jesus must have smitten him. And Jesus resurrects the kid so the kid can say, no, I, 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 Jesus didn't smite me. I fell off a roof. You half expect Jesus to knock him back down again <laughs> when he served his purpose. And uh, this is my poem, in my mind, similar to uh, the book, uh, the life of David, uh, and I, I put together and put rhymes to uh, some of these stories from the infancy gospel of Thomas, from the childhood of Jesus. One Saturday morning he went to the river to play. He modeled twelve sparrows out of the river clay and scooped a clear pond with a dam of twigs and mud. Around the pond he set the birds he had made, evenly as the hours. Jesus was five. 
He smiled as a child would who had made a little world of clear still water and clay beside a river. But a certain Jew came by, a friend of his father, and he scolded the child and ran at once to Joseph, saying, Come see how your child has profaned the Sabbath, making images at the, at the river on the day of rest. So Joseph came to the place and took his wrist and told him, Child, you have offended the word. Then Jesus freed the hand that Joseph held and clapped his hands and shouted to the birds to go away. They raised their beaks at his words and breathed and stirred their feathers and flew away. The people were frightened. Meanwhile, another boy, the son of Anas the scribe, had idly taken a branch of driftwood and leaning against it had broken the dam and muddied the little pond and scattered the twigs and stones. Then Jesus was angry and shouted, Unrighteous, impious, ignorant, what did the water do to harm you? Now you are going to wither the way a tree does. You shall bear no fruit and no leaves. You shall wither down to the root. At once the boy was all withered. His parents moaned. The Jews gasped. Jesus began to leave, then turned and prophesied, his child's face wet with tears. Twelve times twelve times twelve thousands of years before these heavens and this earth were made, the Creator set a jewel in the throne of God, with hell on the left and heaven to the right, the sanctuary in front, and behind an endless night endlessly fleeing a Torah written in flame. And on that jewel in the throne, God wrote my name. Then Jesus left and went into Joseph's house. The family of the withered one also left the place, carrying him home. The Sabbath was nearly over. By dusk, the Jews were all gone from the river. Small creatures came from the undergrowth to drink and foraged in the shadows along the bank. Alone in his cot in Joseph's house, the son of man was crying himself to sleep. The moon rose higher. The Jews put out their lights and slept. And all was calm and as it had been, except in the agitated household of the scribe Anas and high in the dark, where, unknown even to Jesus, the twelve new sparrows flew aimlessly through the night, not blinking or resting, as if never to alight. Where does that come from? Good question. I think that to myself as I read it. Uh, I think it comes from a sense of um, them all being Jews down at the river and trying to imagine the moment when the busy body comes by and says, don't do that on Shabbos. And the child looks up like a Stephen King child and says, whose Sabbath is it? And that is the moment when the Jew becomes the other, when this division takes place. And um, it is characteristic of the stories we tell. And my interest in David, like my interest in Jesus, is not exactly theological or historical. It's an interest in the storytelling animal and in the way we keep putting on another layer of story, another layer of story, another layer of story. And I feel like I am just part of that process. As, as you speak of that, what, what comes to my mind is something much, much later, but equally Judaic, namely the tales of the Hasidim. And the stories told about the Baal Shem Tov, and yet other inspired Hasidic rabbis. 
I think you see in those in, in those Shifchei Abesh, those those tales of of the uh, the rabbis, maybe a process in some ways similar to what happened to stories of David, which mm-hmm. is, I think they tend to become more and more pious over time, just as the David of Chronicles, the later d- biblical David, is uh, is a more pious and and somewhat more flawless creature than the David of the earlier book of Samuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that these tales tend even even from the first generations of, of the Hasidim to a few generations yeah. later, you can see that, that same process taking place. Going back to your earlier question, Milt, about the authorship, I sense one really great genius storyteller who tells almost all of what we call the second book of Samuel and quite a lot of first, and that is just a terrific imagination, not particularly interested in moral instruction or in saying the Lord wants you to do this or not that, it's someone who just knows to invent details. Like when in Saul's tent, Saul finally agrees to let David fight Goliath. Saul says, well, look, I'll give you my armor. And David puts on the helmet, which is like crowning, and the armor, and he can't move. <laughs> David's strength is his quickness in every sense. And he says, I can't go in this. And then he takes the armor back off. Well, it's a very charming scene. It's a very symbolically loaded scene. And it's just great narrative. It's like a great film director says, well, have him put his armor on, but then he can't really use his armor. Uh, it's a scene that Machiavelli writes mm-hmm. about. He says, oh, this shows you, well, the armor of other people will either slow you down or fall off your back. You must have your own. And uh, it's also just, it's like a little genre painting. So you just want to see it. It's just so interesting. And there is an imagination that comes up with many, many details like that, including going out and getting the 200 foreskins instead of the 100 foreskins. It's somebody who has the mind of a terrific novelist or film writer or poet. Another great archetypical human story uh, is strongly represented in what we have of uh, David in the Hebrew Bible, and that is the revolt of the princes against the father. Uh, the story of Absalom and his revolt against uh, his father, David, his attempt in fact, to become king by defeating David on the field of battle. Uh, and then his strange and yet fitting ending. This was enough, of course, to inspire uh, many writers, including Faulkner, was it not? Yeah, Absalom, his Absalom. book, Absalom, Absalom. Sure. I'd, li- I'd like to ask Ben, in that episode, in both of the rebellions, in that rebellion and the later rebellion, David relies on the Cherethites and Pelethites and there's a very moving scene where a guy, I forget, David says, look, you're not one of us, don't, and the guy says, no, as in an adventure movie, I'll stay with you and fight with you. There are all these um, non-Hebrew allies who seem to be David's main supporters. Um, I find that interesting just as narrative. I find it interesting the way I find it interesting that Jesus made sparrows that flew away. Mm-hmm. Um, what, can you illuminate that? Yeah. I, I, we know that there are there were mercenaries who, who were employed in various parts of the ancient Near East, as as it was the case everywhere in the world. It it's a it's a detail that makes sense. Here here's a man who's trying to create a country. He's trying to create a unified kingdom where there really hadn't been one before. Mm-hmm. Saul hadn't quite fully succeeded in creating that unified kingdom. You've got different tribes with their own loyalties. You need somebody whose loyalty is exclusively to you. Mm-hmm. And where do you find that? Even within the tribe of Judah, they may be more loyal to the tribe of Judah than to this one particular youngest son of a particular clan. But you get somebody from the outside, they have no loyalties, and, and, and you can use them for... Is it reasonable to see this the, uh, partly as a process of becoming a more uh, 
something more like a little bit closer to a, a, a modern period nation, that it is something a little bit less like every man to his tent, and the fact that they're mercenaries and that he founds a city and will have a temple instead of a tabernacle, um, and that uh, uh, warning uh, that uh, Samuel hyphen the Lord gives, there's a king, you'll have to pay taxes, your children will work for him, that this is all a process of abandoning one tribal way of thinking and doing this other more cosmopolitan or urban or, or something more mo closer, a step closer to a modern kind of historical structure. I'm not sure if I'd, I'd so much say it's a step closer to a modern historical structure, but it's a step away from the tribal structure that people in the region of Canaan were probably used to towards the, the structures that existed further north in, mm -hmm. in what is today Syria, in, in the Assyrian kingdom, further to the, uh, to the east in Babylonia, further west in Egypt. Um, it's a structure in which there's a human king, which inevitably means both the tribe is less important, but also perhaps the divine king is going to be less important. Speaking of kings and their divinity and of their uh, progeny, something we haven't yet adverted to at all, but I invite you to do so after we pause for another round of commercials, is uh, the connection between David and Jesus, and Jesus supposedly being directly descended from the house of David, which is a, in the New Testament given as a way of legitimating his claim to be the Son of God. We return directly to Robert Pinsky and to Benjamin Summer after these words. With a brief reading from the New Testament, Matthew 1:20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. The Davidic origins, even though to be sure, uh, this is an immaculate conception, or rather, or no, immaculate conception is the, the conception of Mary, right. but. Uh, this is the virginal conception, surely. Still, supposedly, Jesus is descended from the line of David, and that legitimates him and is the beginning of his claim to Messiahship. Mm -hmm. Messiah is supposed to be. Uh, that always seems very mean to me. The majority culture is already oppressing these people and killing them and doing it. Then they take away their king. <laughs> uh, this is the penultimate section of my book. It's a two-page section called David in Paradise. It reads... There is a Christian tradition of understanding David of Bethlehem as a foreshadowing or typification of Jesus. But on the other hand, or equally, David can be understood as rendering Jesus a tremendous afterthought, a precluded and showy iteration of David. Louis Ginsberg's monumental Legends of the Jews retells the Midrash account of Judgment Day, when God will prepare a banquet in paradise for the souls of all the righteous. At the end of that glorious meal, God will pass the wine cup over which grace is said to Abraham. And God will say to Abraham, Pronounce the blessing over the wine, thou who art the father of the pious of the world. And Abraham will answer, He's not worthy, because he's the father also of the Ishmaelites. God will turn then to Isaac and ask him to recite the blessing instead. But Isaac will protest, He's unworthy, for the children of my son Esau destroyed the temple. Then God invites Jacob, who will decline the honor because he too is unfit, since he was married to two sisters at once, which the Torah, albeit later on, forbids. So the Lord of hosts offers the cup to Moses. Say the blessing, for thou didst receive the law and didst fulfill its precepts. And Moses answers, since he wasn't worthy to enter the Holy Land, surely he's not worthy to pronounce the blessing. 
Next, God will offer the blessing of the wine and the meal of the day of judgment to Joshua, the leader who brought the children of Israel to the promised land. And Joshua will say, he cannot be worthy of the honor because he was not found worthy to bring forth his son. And at last, in the words of Ginsburg's great compilation, God will turn to David. Take the cup and say the blessing, thou the sweetest singer in Israel and Israel's king. And David will reply, yes, I will pronounce the blessing, for I am worthy of the honor. This may be an account less of David's arrogance than of his unmitigated fitness beyond chutzpah and above challenge, and possibly a matter less of fitness pure and sanctified than of David's particular and personally fitting destiny. The resistless outcome of character structured like a Jewish joke, but with a punchline of outrageous, transcendent, and insuperably cockeyed redemption. Quote, then God will take the Torah and read various passages from it, and David will recite a psalm in which both the pious in paradise and the wicked in hell will join with a loud amen. Thereupon God will send his angels to lead the wicked from hell to paradise. This seems to me simultaneously very funny, like a Jewish joke, and very beautiful. And it seems clear to me that whoever made up that cockamamie story was very familiar with Christian tradition and the image of Christ harrowing hell. And the implicit meaning of the story is, you want to harrow hell, we'll harrow hell. We have it all. David, uh, David already contains all of this. By the way, speaking of the Bible, uh, an email that has come in, which I should read to you, and this goes uh, directly to you, uh, Ben, because I believe you use the term referred to here. Uh, I read, you mentioned BCE several times tonight. In the Christian world, as you know, uh, it is uh, BC before Christ. What is BCE? Well, modern scholars of religion, both Jewish and Christian, often avoid using the terms BC and AD, which are specifically Christian religious terms uh, for, for those people who don't believe that Jesus was in fact the Christ, that Jesus was Messiah. BC is not exactly the, the appropriate term. So instead, people use the terms CE, meaning common era, in place of AD, in the year of our Lord, and BCE, before the common era. It, it means the exact same thing, and I always tell my students they can say whatever they want. Um, but in Often Jews don't say B.C., and, and actually a great many Christian scholars in an academic mm -hmm. setting would avoid that terminology as well. And speaking of emails, it's time to invite emails and, more particularly, phone calls. Uh, 591-7200 is the number, of course, as it always is. And we welcome your calls. Any questions, any thoughts that you want to share? 591-7200. The lines are open and available to you at this instant. And if you want to get to us via email... Uh, and if you're listening over the Internet particularly at some very distant place uh, on either coast or beyond the country, then uh, the email address is extension720 at tribune.com. Extension 720 as one word at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, or 591-7200. Get those calls and emails in if you are so inclined, and we'll be with you directly after this. The book that is the basis for our conversation tonight is The Life of David by Robert Pinsky, who is, of course, one of our guests. And The Life of David is published by Schalken Books, the first in a series. You said the, the general title for the series is? Jewish Encounters. Jewish Encounters. 591-7200 is our number, and the lines are available to you. Get your calls in directly and quickly if you want to be heard. 591-7200. 
Email is also welcome. The address for that is extension720 at tribune.com. And here is the first call. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, thanks. Uh, thank you again for the illuminating discussion. I have two separate questions, if you will. Uh, the first is, uh, could you evaluate David as a model of repentance, of tshuva? He's got much to repent about, hasn't he? <laughs> he does confess. He confesses. Um, he, When he's granted Nathan the prophet, comes to him in chapter 12 and, and tells him, um, you're, this, you're the person who's done this terrible thing, and David admits it, and in that respect, I suppose... Which terrible thing is... That is I'm sorry, that you, he, he admits that, yep, I, I committed adultery and then committed murder to, to cover the adultery up. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, basically from then on until his death, he is punished. From that moment on, his life and the life of his family really is, is utterly horrific. From then on, we see rape within his family, incest, his, one of his sons uh, rapes one of his daughters. Uh, the problems get bigger and bigger until what basically is a family con conflict with his son Absalom becomes a civil war, a full-fledged civil war. Um, so he, he, he commits a, a sin. He makes teshuvah, as you say in Hebrew. He, he repents. He admits it. There's not a whole lot he can do to make up for it, though. He, he can't bring Uriah back. And in fact, he's, I think he's punished from that chapter on until he dies. Thank you. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, does Ms. Rinsky, do you, Dr. Pinsky, do you have any insight into that? It's a very striking scene. Nathan tells a parable about a poor man who has just one animal he loves and a rich man who has many. Uh, I suppose it's counter-feminist with David. Uh, I always feel that when we talk about David as an adulterer, I realize the word must have a different meaning for somebody who has dozens of wives and sub-wives and assistant wives and concubines. Well, he was an adulterer because he had... Yes, I know, I understand. Uh, but that it does change, I don't know if it makes it worse or better. Worse or better. Anyway, uh, Nathan very skillfully tells this parable and David says that's a terrible man that rich man is often in, and uh, famously in the translation Nathan, Nathan says thou art the man and it's a moment at which it's possible to picture David um, saying take this prophet away and cut him up into little pieces or never let him come before me again or something and David says as I remember something like I have sinned before the Lord and I always picture it as being a scene where there are other people around. Hmm. I don't picture it happening between two men. I picture a kind of a courtly audience. And it's another example of David's self-control that he can confess that he's been caught. He is a powerful king. He says, that's a bad man. Nathan says, thou art the man. And it's not so much David's power of repentance. I always have a sneaking, my nasty irreverent side wants to say, oh, you sinned against the Lord? No, you sinned against Uriah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right away, it's between you and God. Mm -hmm. You sinned against this poor, honest, decent fellow. Mm -hmm. And you didn't even do it out of a great love. There's no indication he's in love with Bathsheba. He was trying to beat her paternity rap. Uh, Is there no indication that he's in love with Bathsheba? I don't see any. He, we don't, we, he's we don't. got a passionate excitement over her. Oh, he sure. wants her, and then he has her. And it seems to be over until then she calls him up and says, I'm pregnant. Why does he favor the son that he had with Bathsheba uh, for the inheritance of the kingship? That's Solomon, much later. That's so, a very yes, complicated. But Solomon is not his oldest born. Primogeniture 
is violated by, by David. Well, actually, Near Eastern kings even today don't necessarily rule by primogeniture. When in Saudi Arabia or in Jordan, mm -hmm. uh, a king dies, it's be not sure the eldest. It, it, it's a mm -hmm. brother of the king or any of a number of children of the king who can become king. The, the other princes have to agree. So th there was no law of primogeniture in mm -hmm. that sense. But um, when, he, when Solomon takes the throne, it's not really clear what David thinks. David is a very old man at that point. He's, he, we, we don't know whether Remember, he's Remember, Solomon to... kills uh, a few of his brothers to get them out of the way as possible claimants to the royal position. One of the brothers made a symbolic move to try to take the yeah. throne, and, and Solomon has him done away with. Um, but it, it, it's clear that... And he uh, offers the children of a number of the other brothers uh, to... One of the enemies of Israel, I forget who it is. He often he offers members of. Um, uh, we're talking about David offering uh, members of Saul's family to the Gibeonites. Oh, uh, yes, it goes back hang. to David, doesn't yeah, it? That, yes, that's right. to, him to hang. Yeah. To get back to Bathsheba, if he was in love with Bathsheba, mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense to me to love Bathsheba. He calls Uriah back from the army, and he he gets him drunk. Mm -hmm. The king invites this soldier over to the house and says, "Have some more wine, Uriah." Have a little more to drink. Great wife you got there. She's a terrific wife. Go home now. You want to go to sleep, right? And the key phrase he says to him, go home and bathe your feet. Feet of go, go get your feet wet. Feet in biblical Hebrew are a euphemism for genitalia. He's, he's giving his soldier a command there. He's saying, go home and get in bed with your wife. And his motive for that is that if he does that, he no longer will be on the hook for this paternity case. This, to me, is not Gregory Peck loving Susan Hayward beyond reason. <laughs> this is a political figure who wants to get rid of an awkward situation. We really never know who, whom David loves, uh, if David loves anybody. We're ne David is never the now subject I'll, of the verb other than I Jonathan. Now other I than Jonathan. He loves Jonathan, but I think he loves Michal. And I you can, think he does? I think he loves Michal because they hate one another so viciously. And only people who have been passionately in love can treat one another as, you, got a, you have a passage on that that you're savagely as they do oh it's just wonderful let's hear uh, let's hear some of it from the book king david in his triumph decides to bring the ark of the lord into his new city jerusalem in a procession with music sacrificial offerings ecstatic dancing this is after her husband faltiel has been sent back and it was so when they bore the ark of the lord had gone six paces he sacrificed oxen and david danced before the lord with all his might and david was girded with the linen ephod so david and the house of israel brought up the ark of the lord with shouting the sound of the trumpet and as the ark of the lord came into the city of david michal saul's daughter looked through a window and saw king david leaping and dancing before the lord and she despised him in her heart the dancing recalls the days of whirling with Samuel in Ramah. The procession recalls Michal's horrible trick with her weeping husband, Faltiel, tersely commanded by Abner at the end of the journey to go home. The window recalls her helping a younger David escape from the murderous anger of her half-insane father. And the dancing and music continue. David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. This is really angry marriage. These are the unmistakable bitter tones of the unsparing killjoy hatred that can come only from sexual love. Their quarrel is not with Saul or even with fate, but with one another. 
This is the toxic attachment, the wounded desire to wound between a man and a woman. Michal hates him not simply for inflicting that tortured march on her and her husband, Faltel. She hates him for being himself, for being David. She hates him for what she loved in him when she was a king's daughter and he that splendid upstart. And when she looks out the window that conceivably reminds her of that other window she helped him out, to see him dancing wildly, a naked or half-naked king, whirling in exaltation, <coughs> she beholds again the same thing she loved in him, she despises it afresh. About his wild dancing, David answers her in kind, with what can be imagined as tears of passion. And David said unto Michal, It was before the Lord which chose me before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. I will yet be more vile than thus and will be base in my own sight and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of them shall I be had in honor. And the chapter ends, quote, Therefore Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. I can't resist this, and I put it to Benjamin. Uh, in a serious Orthodox synagogue, a good part of the time is spent examining uh, the, the Testament, examining the Hebrew Bible, and examining, for that matter, other uh, more or less sacred scriptures, and uh, conjecturing as to their ultimate meaning. If um, if Robert were sitting with Chaverim uh, in an Orthodox synagogue, Chazidim perhaps, and offered them this interpretation, how would they respond? How would they respond? You find you, you find many many traditional Jews, not just today, but through the ages, who as I mentioned before, who want to whitewash David, who want to get rid of mm -hmm. this side of David. I think you see that already in the book of Chronicles. You see it in some of the Midrashim. By the way, when, when about roughly 10, 12 years ago, when Shimon Peres, as prime minister, mentioned this, the sin of David as, a, as an example of how we can't always use David as, as, a, as an exemplar for our people, this actually caused a coalition crisis <laughs> when the ultra-Orthodox parties were furious that he was reading the text of the Bible as if though it meant what it said. Uh -huh. <laughs> On the other hand, I, I should note that there are some voices in rabbinic literature that do acknowledge David's sin. You see this very clearly in medieval rabbinic commentaries that refer to otochet, especially commentaries more on the book of Psalms that talk about how this is a psalm that he wrote after admitting his sin. And, and they are, they actually usually don't, don't say what that sin, otochet in Hebrew is. They assume we know which one we're talking about. We're talking about David and Bathsheba. It's so terrible that they can't even say the, the words, but they do acknowledge that, that he did something vile. But there's clearly a side in rabbinic literature and in contemporary ultra-Orthodoxy, at least in Israel, that doesn't want to admit that and that will bring a government down or threaten to if, if you try to say that the text means what it says. But in Pilful, in close conjecture about the meaning of Scripture, there's very often a, uh, a, a readiness to recognize the human quality of these uh, biblical characters, is there not? I think so. I, Just as Robert is doing in this uh, reconstruction. Certainly that's the case. I, I think, though, that at least to a modern reader, it's easier to see how the biblical narrators themselves, the authors of Samuel or Genesis mm -hmm. or, or, or Exodus, how they really do have very, very subtle, complex, mixed pictures of these great heroes. Moses is, is sometimes portrayed very negatively. David very clearly is portrayed very negatively. Joseph, 
we're, we're wondering what his motives sure. are. At times he seems petulant. At times he seems cruel to his own family. And I, I think it's easier for a modern reader to pick that up in a close, slow reading of the Bible itself than in a reading of some of the Midrashic texts, which really can't be read. They have to be studied. They have to be studied very, very carefully. It's very hard to study them in translation. And I think that that side of Midrash is often overlooked. There are Midrashim that do play up these complexities, but to a modern reader, it's harder to pick up. Bible, I, I might put it this way. Bible, the Bible itself is a much more modern book than the rabbinic commentaries about the Bible. And I think that that may be part of why Bible has become much more important to Jewish culture in the last hundred years than it was previously. The that Bible makes sense. has it, it's a, it's it's in a sense a more accessible book, but the Bible's narratives often have a certain irony, and nowhere more so than in the case of David. I mean, this cutting nature that makes them very seem, seem very 20th century. What I love about this dialogue is I feel tremendous sympathy with both people. She is telling him he's disgusting for dancing naked in the street. He says, yeah, and I was chosen over your family. I'm going to dance more naked. I'm going to have more servant girls look at me. And you can feel that these are two people who have been through a lot together. You see that in the portrayal of Saul as well. Mm -hmm. There's, Saul is clearly the bad guy in the book of Samuel. He's the guy who should never have been king. Why God chose him at all isn't clear. My guess is that God didn't want them to have a king at all in the first place. He was insulted that they wanted a king. And he said, you want a king? I'll give you a king. I'll give you a handsome king. He's tall. <laughs> he's perfect. And you'll see what a terrible king he is. And yet, even though Saul's a disaster, he's, a tra he, he's also a tragic figure. He's a person I think that we can feel a great sympathy for because if, if he just had never become king, he would have had a great life as a, as a simple farmer, which is what he was supposed to what, be. What, what do you make of Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands? When Saul heard that, he was not happy, and I can see why. Yeah. When when, um, when when the women were were, um, were reciting this, you know, the, it's typical in biblical poetry that the second half of a line will up the ante. That if if a, a biblical poetic line usually says something and then says it again, but when it says it the second time, it ups the ante. So in that respect, this is a typical line of poetry: thousands, then tens of thousands. But they put David in one particular place and Saul in the other. Um, this was Saul was beginning to see that the writing was to. to to borrow a metaphor from a different biblical book, the writing was on the wall. Mm -hmm. We'll go to the phones. Here is a call. Good evening. You're on the air. Hi there. Uh, question for Professor Summer. Does he think that possibly King David actually wrote any of the Psalms in the book of Psalms? Did David write the Psalms in the book of Psalms? It's very difficult to know. I think that we can say for sure that he, there are some Psalms that he didn't write. Uh, there are psalms that make reference to later events, such as the destruction of, of the temple by the Babylonians 500 years after the time of David. There are psalms that linguistically are clearly a product of a later kind of Hebrew, a Hebrew that David wouldn't have known. We could even ask, by the way, did the editors of the Book of Psalms necessarily think that David wrote the Book of Psalms? The, the phrase Lid David, usually translated, I think, to David or by David, a psalm of David, that could mean a lot of different things. It could mean these, this belongs to David, that this psalm was written as part of a collection that was, that was put together by people working for the royal staff. On the other hand, there clearly are some psalms that refer to events in David's life. Psalm 51, for example, talks about David confessing his sin and pleading for mercy after the sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. Whether David really wrote that or didn't write that, ultimately, I, I, 
as a scholar, I can only say I don't know. And, and more than that, as both as a reader of poetry and as a religious person, I have to agree with Robert here, it, it really doesn't matter. When I sit down on a, on a Friday night or a Saturday morning in synagogue, or nowadays every morning I sit down and I read Psalm 27 because that's the psalm that one reads before the high holidays in this season of the year, it doesn't matter to me whether the historical David wrote this or somebody else. The point of the psalms is that as you recite these, it's your psalm. It's not It's not David's psalm. It's, it's primarily your own psalm. Can you for a moment recite at least a portion of 27? L'david Adonai orivi yishi mimi ira Adonai ma'oz chayai mimi efchad Of David, whatever that means, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord... Um, what is this? Uh, I have to recite it again in Hebrew as I'm saying it. Um, of whom shall I be afraid? First, uh, the first verse there. Another call coming up, 591-7200. Good evening, you're on the air. Yes, uh, you talked earlier about the uh, power of uh, the writer of Samuel, that he was more of a storyteller than a moralist. But often we have stories that are not either or, they're both and. And I'm thinking especially of the story that Nathan tells David when he comes to him. And because David doesn't know that it's about himself, he becomes outraged, and he even prescribes a punishment that the central figure of the story ought to receive. And then Nathan says, well, you are the man. And I'm, I'm wondering what kind of history the, the type of story has that is more than a parable. It actually catches the hearer morally off guard so that he ends up indicting himself. We, we find something like that elsewhere in the Bible as well, by, by the way. We, the, the first two chapters of the book of Amos uh, work in precisely the same way. They're an attack on the nations that were the Israelites' enemies, and they seem to be culminating in some sort of glorification of, of the Israelites, or that's what the, the audience expects, and yet, in fact, the opposite happens. And the strongest criticism of this Israelite prophet is criticism of the Israelites themselves. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not 100% sure that I fully agree that, that these stories are, uh, uh, don't have a, a moralistic side. I mean... Oh, no, I said that they do. Um, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at Robert as I'm saying that. I'm sorry. Oh. Um, but it is the case that from this moment on, David never loses his status as God's beloved. David, David, God made a promise to David, and God always keeps that promise, the promise that God made in Second Samuel 7. But David is punished from this moment forward. And I think that there, it's not only a simple moral tale. It's, a, it's much, much more complex than that. But I think it does have a moralistic side. Yeah, caller, I think the key difference is between the word moralistic and the word moral. And that's a very, very big difference. Um, Nathan tells a parable to David. The author masterfully tells a fiction, a story, whatever you want to call it. Uh, of David and Nathan interacting with one another, uh, I, I don't. I don't think there's a really big argument between Benjamin and me. But I, I, I don't think there's much indication, overtly, that these are punishments. They're things that happen, and we are free to think of them as punishments. But compared to uh, a moralistic tradition of reading these stories, the stories themselves are just this happened, and then that happened, and this happened, and then that happened. They don't say, then David was punished. Right? We are, if they do, it seems an implausible uh, 
uh, interpolation. Our thanks to the caller. Gentlemen, we're almost out of time. Um, I must indulge myself. Uh, a character who fascinates me a great deal is the son of David. What do you make of Solomon? How do you react to him? Does he grab you the way David does? doesn't grab me in quite the same way. No. To me, the most fascinating two characters in the Bible, other than God, of course, uh, are David and David's doppelganger, which is Joseph in yeah. the book of Genesis. Precisely because there's this complexity, we don't really know what they're thinking. And as, as you just said, Robert, the causality is never clear. It's implied, but we're never quite sure what the character's motives is. Most of all, we're, not, we're never sure what God's motives are. Robert, how have you reacted to Solomon? Solomon is a kind of an idea. Solomon is not a, a deeply characterized mm -hmm. the way David is characterized. Solomon is... Uh, it's all covered by his wisdom, supposedly. Wisdom, but he has his, you know, he, he picks up, uh, he, he starts following uh, very weird religions, non-Jewish religions. Yes. I think, is it Ashtarte that he goes for? Because one of his girlfriends or wives. One of his wives. And he's a... Uh, He's an interesting figure, but not an interesting human being. Part of the difference is the difference between Samuel, the book of Samuel and the book of Kings. Samuel's great literature. Kings is, 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 is historiography. It's history writing. It doesn't have the same sort of character development that we have in the, in the David stories back in the book of Samuel. You have to agree. Well, who else in the Hebrew Bible grabs you? I think Joseph, that story... Yeah. Uh, of Joseph. Interesting. They both are sort of stories that involve sexual attractiveness, too. Correct. That, mm -hmm. uh, that and brothers who are very unhospitable to you. Both They're both sto like the folktale of the young son. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. both stories in which there's an individual with extraordinary self-control. They're very, very, again, different from Achilles. Even different from Moses, by the way. Uh, Moses doesn't have the self-control that, that, that mm -hmm. uh, David has or that Joseph has. One other character I'd say that fascinates me at the very beginning of Samuel is the character of Eli, a poor, bumbling man who gets in way over his head yes. and yet is always honest about it. He's, he's really the forerunner of everything, everything that happens in Samuel. If you read those couple of chapters about Eli, about four chapters That's at the funny. beginning, it's the whole book of Samuel in, in, in little. We, um, I hope, have stirred some new interest in, on the part of secular folks to get back to uh, the Bible, to get back to the Old and the New Testaments, or the Hebrew Bible uh, and uh, the Christian Bible, and enjoy them as literature and for their illumination of and their stirring of uh, human passion and human understanding. Uh, our guests have been Robert Pinsky, author of the fine new book, The Life of David, and Benjamin Summer of Northwestern University.